So today we're going to discuss a and talk over and learn a sicha from the Rebbe, a talk from the Rebbe that he spoke in 1976 at this time of year. Now, this uh, sicha is printed as the fifth sicha of this week's Parsha Shalach in volume 18. Now, this sicha, I just want to give a little background to it, is made up from two talks that the Rebbe gave. One is a talk that he gave um, during the week of Parsha Shlach on the, uh, 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 it must have been on a Thursday, because that's the connection to the Thursday night, would be the connection to the Friday Chomesh portion. And it's a very interesting that he would speak a sicha every year, at this time of year, for the girls that graduated high school and seminary in Crown Heights from the school known as the girls' school, the base Rifka school. So at the end of the school year, they would graduate, and the highlight of the graduating year was you all got to come to 770, and they would empty out the whole big shul of 770 of all the men. Everybody got kicked out of shul, and only the girls would come in, and the Rebbe would come down and speak a talk for these young girls. And the only men in the room besides the Rebbe was a couple of his secretaries. That's it. So you're talking maybe three, five men were there in the room. And anybody else that wanted to hear the Rebbe talk. So the men or the Bachram would run upstairs to the ladies section. It was the only time we were ever in the women's gallery because that was empty. The girls were downstairs in the main shul. Or, or it was had a speaker to outside 770, you could hear it from there. And that's the way you heard. Now, in addition to the girls that were graduating, also any girls that were going to be counselors in Camp Emuna, which is in the Catskills of New York, and also the girls that were counselors in a camp in Montreal in called Camp Pardes Chana, which is also a girls' camp, the counselors that were going going to be the counselors, the head staff, the counselors, or whatever staff of these camps, they were welcome to join the girls, you know, uh, uh, graduation, seminary, whatever you call it, you know, uh, uh, a time where the Rebbe would do this address special to the girls. Now, if somebody would understand Yiddish, I would say 100%, it's worthwhile to listen to the talk. It speak, the Rebbe speaks, um, elaborates using more words, expressing ideas of Torah and motivational ideas, especially geared to the women, but not specifically only to the women. And it was, you know, deep, but in a way that you could grasp it for that age, you know, kind of uh, young women. And it's a fascinating thing. I don't know if this existed previously in history that a tzaddik, a rebbe, a leader of a generation would speak an exclusive talk just to the women. I, I don't know, but this was an amazing thing. Every year this would happen and he would use so many words to express something and, and, and elaborate on it in so many different ways and sometimes throw in even some English words into it and sometimes political things that was going around in the world and it's always recorded, so we have that recorded because it was always uh, during a week thing. Now, the following Shabbos, which was Parsha Shlach, the Rebbe picked up on the theme 
of what he spoke to the girls on the, the night before, and he gave a whole talk about a Rashi on the similar theme, but he went much more deep because Shabbos is the Fabrengan, it's a much more deeper crowd. So years later, when the uh, those those that were involved in writing up the, the talks and giving them into the Rebbe to edit, so years later, in, uh, in one year later in this case, a year later, 1977, they gave it in to publish. So they get in the published edition, first you're going to have the Shabbos part, which is all the more technical, Rashi, learned stuff. And then the second half really captures the talk that he spoke to, to the women. But the bottom line is you're going to, we'll appreciate it at both levels, the more deeper way of, of thinking and the Torah component with the Rashi and his questions, the nuances. And once you have all that set, then you can really appreciate the talk that he gave to the women, which has unbelievable, profound lessons. So the theme of today's uh, class is all around the mitzvah, which we're going to find out later why, but it's quite dedicated and specific to women more than to men. But in general, the mitzvah still applies to everybody, not just to women, which is the mitzvah of challah. A lot of people think, uh, you know, if, if you don't think about it, then you could think that challah is the mitzvah of challah, is having challah at your Shabbos table. But that is not at all what the mitzvah of challah is. Challah actually means a portion. And you, there's a mitzvah in the Torah. Let's read the verse. The verse says in today's parsha in chapter 15, verse 20, says the following. That when you're, first it says, the few verses before says that when you're going to come into the land of Israel, and which is, by the way, an interesting note to note, the Jews were punished to stay in the desert for 40 years. Yet, the entire 40 years, we're getting messages from God, when you're going to enter into the land, don't forget, there's going to be this mitzvah, and this mitzvah, and this mitzvah. So we're finding out about all these mitzvahs and how we're going to have to conduct our lives when we get into the land of Israel. Now, one of the biggest differences, the way life was in the desert and the way the life is going to be, and it is since that we came into the land of Israel, is that we have to work hard for our food sustenance. In the desert, we had the manna falling from heaven, in Egypt, we were slaves, so you got to, you know you got your daily rations. And in the desert, we had the manna falling from heaven, and that's how you ate. But when you're going to come into the land of Israel, and you're going to have to work for your food, you're going to have to rake the field, you're going to have to sow the planting, you're going to have to harvest it, then you're going to have to take the wheat, and then stocks, and then you're going to take the kernels, and then you're going to grind it, and then you're going to have the flour, you're going to mix it with water or whatever other liquids, and then you're going to make it into a dough to make it into challah, which means making it into a loaf, a bread or a loaf, which is, that's what challah is, right? So the commandment is the following. When you're going to come into the land, and by the way, some of the laws in Israel applied only once we settled the land. Because the first seven years we were conquering it, the next seven years we were settling in it. So really it took 14 years till we really got the land properly. But the food, right away you're going to start getting finding the lands to work the field. So this law applies right when you're going to come into the land of Israel, is the following that you're going to have to take you're going to take the first of your batch of dough, a you're going to take from the first of the batch, you're going to take a challah, and you're going to lift it up or set it aside, this portion, just like 
you would give a portion of your threshing floor, meaning the the grains that you were producing, you would give some grain away also to Hashem. So just like you would give away some of the kernels of the seeds of the from the threshing floor, Cain Tarimu Isa, so too shall you set it aside with the dough that you're making for this challah. So that's the verse. So now let's read over the verse one more time and then we'll see what Rashi explains to us. So again, the beginning or the head, the beginning part of your kneading of this dough, you shall set it aside, a loaf, like a, a, to be a portion, a portion of it, like the threshing floor portion. So shall you set it aside. Okay, that's the actual verse. Rashi comes and tells us that you're commanding us to set aside a in the beginning, a beginning of the portion, the head of the portion, ratios of it, you should set it aside, like the set aside that you do for the from the threshing floor. What does it mean? Like the portion that you set aside from the threshing floor. So Rashi tells you it's quite simple. What it means is just like when you would set aside a portion from your threshing floor, you would there is no limit, there is no minimal amount that you have to set aside. It could be a tiny bit, you could leave a lot, you could do whatever you want. There's no minimal amount or maximum amount of giving away as a gift to Hashem. So that's what the verse is trying to tell you when it says, just like the donation you give from the threshing floor, just like by the threshing floor with seeds, there's no amount, so to here, there's no amount. You could take off a teeny bit of the dough, you could take off a lot of bit of the dough, whatever you want, that's what the verse is teaching when it says, like the threshing floor. And then he says, it's also not like the tithing that you would give when you give tithing, for example, when the levy, when you give tithing, you give 10% of your produce, you would give it to the Levite. Now the Levite takes 10% of his portion and he gives that to the Kohen. That's the rules, the way it works, okay? So also you don't have to do it the way you gave tithing the, the 10%. The say that's what the verse is trying to teach you that there's basically no amount that the Torah is not setting an amount how much you have to give you just have to give from the beginning of your batch but says Rashi however chachamim our sages nasnu shir lebalabayis the sages said there is minimal amounts that you have to give what's the amounts that you should give and throughout tonight's learning. We're going to learn how the sages determined this amount. But for now, Rashi just says that the amount that you should give makes a difference if you're a person in your personal home baking challah or if you're a baker and you have a shop, a bakery. If you're baking at home, meaning you're the balabayas, you're the person baking at home, then you have to give one of 24th. A one of 24th is the amount that you have to give away. 
Ula Nachtaim, and for the baker, a baker has to give a smaller portion away. He has to give only one of 48th. That's the amount that he has to take off to give as chalo. So when we say the word chalo, what you really mean is the portion that you're taking off to give it to Hashem. Now, so Rashi basically is telling us again that when the verse says that you have to take from the beginning of your needing, you should take off a portion for God like the threshing floor teaches you that there's no minimum. Just like by the threshing floor, there's no minimum to give. You also don't have to give tithing also the 10% stuff either. You just have to give a portion. But this, that's the law. However, the sages implemented that there should be a minimal amounts. If you're an owner of a house, it's one out of 24th. And, and, and if uh, one from 24th. And if you're a baker, it's one of 48th. On this, Rashi, the Rebbe has six very simple questions. Question number one is, Rashi is quoting from the Medrash and other Talmudic places where the sages talk about the halachic requirement of how much you have to give. And when does Rashi make quotes when he quotes from all, all kinds of Torah sources? Only Rashi only quotes when something is relevant to the literal understanding of a verse of the Torah. Like Rashi says, in a number of places, Rashi says, Ani lo bati ela mikra. I only come to help the under to explain the simple meaning of a verse. So now, if Rashi is coming to explain to you that what does it mean when it says, like the threshing floor, to tell you that that means that there's no minimal amount that you have to give, it's understood. I, I, I understand what Rashi's telling me. He's telling me that why does the verse say like the threshing for to tell me that there's no minimal amount? Because now I understand what the words mean in the verse. That it means like the threshing floor, not like other gifts that do have fixed amounts of percentages and how much you have to give away. If so, why does Rashi see a need to continue his explanation and tell you and by the way, the sages did put a minimal amount how much you have to give. How do, why does Rashi feel that? How does that help you to understand the literal verse of the verse? The wording of the verse. To understand anything that's complicated of the verse is just to know that there's no minimal amount. Okay, Rashi, thank you for telling me that. Why does he have to say, but the rabbis instituted an amount? How does, why do I have to know that here? Rashi doesn't usually tell me halachic things. For halacha, you go look at the halachas farm. That's question number one. Question number two, even if you want to say that by bringing these amounts, he's telling you that it's not regarding to the amount of challah. And Rashi wants to tell you that it means that, that, that in other words, biblically speaking, that's not the amount. It's only the sages are the ones that set an amount. I still don't understand. Why does Rashi have to tell me the amount that the sages said? It has nothing to do with the literal verse explanations of the verse. And again, Rashi is not a halachic book. So first of all, why is he saying anything extra? And second of all, why are you telling me the amounts? Now, 
Number three, even that you, if you would want to learn as a maybe to say that Rashi wants us to have some kind of learning comprehension, what is the measurements that you give away for challah? It would be enough for Rashi just to say that for a homeowner, it's one of 24. Which actually would be a good thing to say if you want to make people familiar with the law for some reason. Because most people are private bakers for your own households. Like we find actually in what's called the Targum Yonason. The Targum Yonason is an Aramaic translation of the Torah. You have the Targum Unkos and you have the Targum Yonason. And Yonason, Targum Yonason, who translates the Torah, who's farther from interpretation like Rashi, which is all about telling you the literal meaning, when he actually brings down the amounts that you're supposed to give away, he says only one of 24th. Why did Rashi find it necessary to tell me that a baker is one of 48? You don't have to go that far to tell me that. So that's the third question. The fourth question is even more. The end of Rashi seems to be a contradiction to the beginning of it. He starts off saying, it's like the threshing floor, which means that the Torah is telling you that it's just like the threshing floor, that there's no limit. There's no minimum. And it's not like tithing, which has an amount. In other words, the Torah is not giving you any amount. And the rule is, so shall you give. No minimal amount. You can give even one crumb. So, how does that work with the end of Rashi, where Rashi says, but the sages did give him an amount. You're saying two opposites. You're saying there's no amount, but the sages did put an amount. It's a contradiction. Is the Torah telling you there is or there isn't? Number five even if Rashi wants to, for whatever reason, to add the part that the sages did give us an amount, and also those details, it would have been fitting for him to tell this to us on the next verse. The next verse reads the following. It says, From the beginning of your needings, you shall give a portion to Hashem for your generations. So the next verse says clearly those words, you should give it, not just put it aside, but you should give it to Hashem. So in those words, give it to Hashem, Rashi says there, when you're saying give it to Hashem, right, or what it meant in those days means you gave it to the Kohen who was representing the godly services. So when you give it to him, Rashi says, even though we didn't hear the amount that you should give, but since it says you should give Giving means you have to give something of some substance. You can't give, a, you know, less than a, some substance. So obviously it should be some substance. That's what Rashi says in the next verse. One second. Shouldn't Rashi tell me the amount of that substance in the next verse? Where he's talking about giving something with substance. Tell me, the sage said, substance means the amount of 1 of 24th. Or for a baker, 1 into 48th. And like we see, actually, there is the Sifri. Sifri is the famous books on the, the halachic, the medrash halacha, halacha. And there's different opinions in the Talmud and the Rambam exactly who's the author of the Sifri, but it's from the earliest sources that we have. And over there, it does say on the verse where it says you should give this portion to Hashem, 
the Sifri says it has to have substance amount. And it tells you the amount is for a homeowner, 1 in 24, the baker, 1 in 48. So over there, he does that. How come Rashi doesn't put the actual sage's recommendation there? On the next verse. Number six. On the other hand, you could say, you could ask, since Rashi already did give me the amounts that the sages said, the details they gave, he gave us, that for a homeowner, 1 in 24, then for a baker, 1 in 48, why doesn't Rashi explain to me the logic and how the sages came up with those numbers? Like actually in the Sifri, he actually does tell you the logic why we give that portion amount. And the, the, the Sifri says that a baker gives a smaller amount, one of 48 is a smaller portion than one of 24. And he says that the, the baker gives a smaller amount because he's baking big loaves. However, the homeowner bakes smaller loaves. So since he's making, so the homeowner is giving smaller loaves, so we make him give a little bit, a little bit more. Like a little more of it should, should, it should, it should uh, kind of stand out. Should have some more uh, more preciousness to it, okay. But why doesn't Rashi tell you the reason? In other words, if Rashi does feel the necessity to tell me this, the amount that the sages are giving, you should have given us a little more information to give me the logical reason why this is the number. So let's summarize the six questions. Number one, according to literal text, which Rashi is all about saying the literal text, why does he have to give me any measurements, period? Number two, the sages give us a period, uh, 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 a, a, the minimal amounts, that would have been enough. Rashi doesn't have to tell me what they said. He could have just said, the sages give us the minimal amounts. Why does he have to spell it out? He's not a book of halacha. Number three, if you would have told me the amount of a homeowner, that would have been enough. Why do you have to tell me the amount for a baker also? Homeowners are the most common people that, uh, that are bakers in terms of numbers of people that bake. Number four, the contradiction at the beginning of Rashi and the end of Rashi, the beginning he says there is no fixed amount. Then he says, but the sages did say an amount. Seems like a total contradiction. Number five, when he says that, that, that the, the sages gave us an amount, it would have been more fitting if he would have said the amounts on this next verse where it says give a portion and tell me, that, and you say that the portion has to be of substance. So there, tell me how much is the substance. And number six, if you're already going to give me the amounts, tell me also the logical reason why a homeowner gives a smaller amount and what the amount is and give me the logic why a baker gives a bigger amount, a smaller amount than, than a homeowner. So the, the explanation to this simply is like this. The Rebbe is going to point out that there's one word in this verse that seems extra. And this word, Rashi also tells us what this word is. The verse says like this. Let's, let's do again, recapture this essence of these ver- the, the verse. The beginning of your needing, you shall set aside challah. It says the word challah. The key is going to be in this word challah. You, sh- you could just say, the verse could have just said, in the beginning of your needing, meaning taking of your dough. What does it mean in the beginning of your needing of you should set aside a challah? What's the challah business? What's this word challah? 
So for so when the verse says that you should give it like the threshing food, so you should you donate. This means like Rashi said that there's no limited amount. So it's a, that that's a, a that's self that's enough to say. But what does the verse mean when it says the word challah? So Rashi says when it says the word challah, what it means is you should take a one challah and give that to Hashem. Rashi says what's a challah? Rashi uses a word from Old French. He says, a challah is tortille in Old French. In, uh, in today's day, in French, it's called, it's a torte, which means a baked good. Like it could be a cake, it could be a loaf, a portion of something. So that's what Rashi is telling us what this means. It means a loaf. So when you say challah, it means a whole thing. So now, if so, it's difficult. How could you say that separating a challah, you're saying separating a loaf, like the separation of the threshing floor, which has no, which has no amount. If the verse itself says you should give a loaf, that means obviously there's an amount. A loaf is... A real substance. So what does the verse mean when it says you should take a challah and it's li- it should be like of the threshing floor which, ha- which is no amount? What does the word challah mean here? What does that add to you here? Therefore Rashi tells you and Rashi adds that even though technically there's no minimal amount but since the, the Torah actually says the word challah, we know that there must be some kind of amount. There must be some amount. So there's no amount, but it's a portion. It's a loaf. It's a tortilla. And for that, the sages come and give us the amount. That means, even though challah, which means tortilla, it just means a loaf on its own, but the name, when you say it's a loaf, has some kind of importance of a substance, of a piece. It's definitely a, a a real thing. And it cannot mean crumbs. When you say challah, you're not meaning crumbs. Crumbs would be a different word. And therefore, the sages felt compelled that it must be that even though there's technically no minimal, but we need to set aside something that will represent the idea of challah of a loaf. Now, to say just a blanket statement, that the Farashi to say that the sages said an amount and not say what the amount is also wouldn't be good. Because the verse says challah, which is tortilla loaf, obviously has no minimal amount. And there's going to be many different kinds of sizes of challahs out there. So you would think that the accomplishment of the sages is in, in making a fixed amount and how big the size of the challah would be on its own. In other words, that according to Torah, you would think that a challah may be the same amount of challah that it is for certain kind of karbanot, certain offerings. There were certain kind of offerings made from food that had special challah. The Rebbe, in a footnote, sends us to a, 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 another place in Chumash, in Vayikra, where it speaks about Meal offerings, right? And for example, you have the thanks, a Thanksgiving offering, the carbon toda, right? 
And over there you have to have 40 chalas from different kinds of, uh, of, of grains and, and, and mixtures and so on. And over there, the chalas have a measurement. Over there, the measurement is called isaron. Isaron is a measurement of 43 eggs and a fifth. So there is some kind of real measurement there that is fixed when it comes to other places when it mentions the word chala. So if the sages over here will not tell us what the amount is in our subject, I may think, oh, maybe this chala is going to be the same size measurement as elsewhere in the Torah where you have the word chala, like in the karbaminchas, in the you know, gift offerings. Therefore, Rashi says that over here in our context, our context, the sages, over here specifically, the sages are fixing a, an amount for us for this dough that it should be relative to the dough. This, the amount that you give should be relative to the dough batch that you're making and not a fixed amount like we have elsewhere in other places where it says challah. This point is what the sages are trying to teach us here. And that's why Rashi's emphasizing there. So again, since the verse says that it's like the grain of the, from the threshing floor, which has no minimal amount. Therefore, and the verse right away says you have to give away a challah, which means some substance. I may say, right, oops, that challah must mean the amount that we have in other places in challah. So comes the sages to tell you that over here, it's not a fixed amount that it's just a challah of, that's made with the amount of 43 eggs and a fifth. It's not like that in this subject. And it is, for a homeowner, it's going to be one at 24th, and for a baker, it's going to be one of 48th. And since this measurement that the sages are giving us is not just any random number, but it has a, a, a precise depth that comes out from the verse, because the verse calls it a chala, it's understood why Rashi does not need to explain the reason for this. One of our questions was, why does, if Rashi is already telling me the amounts that a homeowner has to give one in 24th and the baker one in 48th, so he should have told me also the logical reason behind it. Because Rashi is saying, telling that the word chala seems to be extra and it's emphasizing obviously some kind of significant portion, because like loaf, because that's what he's translating into means a loaf. So he's telling you, I don't have to tell you the reason why it's a different amount for a homeowner and a baker, because that's self-understood. Anything that's self-understood, Rashi doesn't tell us. What's so self-understood? Chala for a homeowner. A homeowner is not a profession. It's not a professional baker. So when a homeowner is baking, your chalas are going to be all accordingly to the you and your household people that are going to be eating. You're going to have some big ones and you're going to have some small ones, but mostly you're going to make it the full-size chalas that you need for your house. Therefore, he says, for you, you're basically making most of the time, a homeowner is going to be making big chalas, so you should give a bigger amount, one of 24th. But the baker, 
who he makes all kinds of sakalas, right? You go into the bakery, you buy extra large, you buy medium size, you buy small, then you buy the little bulkies, right? So there's all different kinds. And he makes sizes for poor people, for for wealthier people, etc., right? A poor, everybody needs to have two challahs on your table, so poor person will buy the two little bulkies. So the, a baker makes all different kinds of size. Therefore, for him, he could just give away. And by the way, the baker, also his livelihood is only going to, his profits are only after he, you know, counts off all his expenses in making the flour, right? And the wood that he needs for the for, for, for this and all the other expenses that he has. Therefore, the challah that he gives to the coin is going to be a smaller amount, one of 48. Because again, he's making a lot of smaller chalos. So since it's so self-understood, the difference, therefore Rashi doesn't have to tell us the difference. And from this, we can understand also simply why Rashi brings both measurements. We asked a question, Rashi could have just said, if he had to say a measure, he could have just said one, tell me just the amount for the homeowner, baker. Why did he tell me also the baker? So he says, now we understand why he has to tell you both, because for the, for the house of homeowner and for the baker. Because just like the sages are giving us general measurements that are that are based on the idea because the Torah used the words challah, turtle, a loaf. That's what you have to give away. So to the word challah is the reason to divide the different amounts, whether you're a baker or a homeowner. Because there's a difference in the size challahs you make. So a homeowner is making bigger ones and the baker is making lots of small ones. That's one reason why Rashi is feels compelled to tell you both measurements for the homeowner, one measurement, and it tells you, it brings down the separate measurement also how much the baker has to give. But another reason is, it brings down another reason like this. Rashi already told us in an earlier verse the amount that you're obligated to give. How did we get to this amount? We said the amounts of 124, 148, but here is the source where we get to the amount, how much is your batch that you actually require to give away challah. By the way, if you make a very small batch, like under like a pound and a half or so from, from dough, we could, you, know, you could check it up later, the exact amounts of uh, whether in pounds or ounces. But if it's so small, you're just making for yourself two little challah, not for like for a whole big household, you don't have to give any challah at all. It doesn't have enough significance. But in general, where do we get this, the, the, the amounts is? So Rashi told us that there's an oimer lagugailas. We had in the story with the manna, when the manna would fall from heaven, everybody would go outside and collect your portion of food. So it says, how much was the portion that everybody had to take for yourself? How much were you allowed? What was your allowance? Omer lagugolis. Omer is the amount, right? You call it the korban omer. It's the measurement. So this measurement amount, you take one omer for every head. How much? Is that amount? 43 eggs and one-fifth. Now, this, this, by the way, is, is a measurement of a hen's egg. Okay? That's, so, 43 eggs. By the way, when you come to bake and you want to know the, your, your amount of how much is this 43 and a fifth of, of eggs... So what you would do is, is you would fill up a big pot of water and gently drop in 43 eggs and a fifth. See how much water falls, comes out of the pot. They obviously have a big bowl under it to catch the water. And 
that's the amount once you put in 43 and fifth eggs then all that amount of water that came out that's the amount of water that you're going to use for your batch okay that would be the technical way to to measure this now we have we have like this when rashi tells us the amount of a head of the omer mana portion for each head of the Omer was 43, a portion. In other words, what's called a portion per person? A portion is, he said, 43 and a fifth eggs, right? So when Rashi would want to tell us only that a homeowner gives one of 24th of this measurement. The measurement is 43 and a fifth eggs. That's the measurement. So you're taking one 24th off from the batch that you made of 43 and a fifth eggs. Now, why is that the measurement amount that you should take a the egg and that, that proportion of one twenty fourth? So we we're now discussing that for a baker and a house owner, is slightly different amounts. But in general, there is an amount of halachic measurement that's important to different subjects. For example, in the parsha of Shmini, where it talks about impurities that food could get contaminated, let's say from a dead body, right? If a dead person was, you know, was touching that or a dead animal or whatever. So the food could become contaminated. But the, and this food that's contaminated could now, if it touches something else, it will contaminate the next thing too. How big of a piece of food does this food need to be in order to be a, considered to be a real food? It said food, it didn't say crumbs. So how big is a food big enough to become contaminated, to become now able to give off impurity to another thing. So in the laws of impurity in Parsha Shemini there, it says there that the size is kibetza. The measure is like the size of an egg. Why an egg? Why is the measurement an egg? By the way, lots of places in the halacha, the measurement amount is an egg. Okay. Sometimes the measurement is an egg. Sometimes a measurement is like the size of an olive. Okay, those are those are the most two common uses that we use. But why the where did we get this idea? So a hen's egg is the right exact size that a person can swallow at once. So that becomes what you call a real substance of food. It's a real substance of food. Not that I, I could eat for 20 minutes, a bunch of the hair, you could eat 10 eggs maybe. The point is that in one, one eating, one biting, one swallow, that's the amount. So the measurement is usually kibetza of an egg. That's no more and no less. When you say this is the measurement, then that's the measurement. If it's a drop smaller, it's a, then, it's, then it's not. If it's a drop bigger, it may be different. But the measurement that the sages give us is that. So now, now he's going to explain to us why Rashi had to tell us both measurements for a homeowner and also for the baker. Because if he would have only said the amount for a homeowner, I would think that according to the sages, it is a little bit more than an egg. Because one of 24th of 43 eggs and a fifth, remember we said 43 eggs and a fifth is the amount that every person would get of the money. So that's what we know what means a real portion. Now, one of 24th, if you make a calculation, how much is one 24th 
of the 435 egg, it's 1.8 eggs. That means it's more than an egg size. Well, if you're going to tell me that a homeowner has to give 124th, that means he has to give, it's almost a measurement of two full eggs. That's going to be a contradiction to many laws that the sages instituted, as the example I gave you just before with impure foods, where the sages said the measurement is exactly an egg. So I would think that this, to say this, that the sages, the sages who say measurements are an egg, comes out that for a homeowner, it's going to be 124. It means it's going to be 1.8, more than, more than the size of an egg. That'll be a contradiction to everywhere else where they say the measurements are an egg. Therefore, Rashi adds, for a baker, it's one of 48s, because you're going to see, you, you could see from that, one of 48s is going to be a lot less than one egg. If you take 43 eggs, 43 and a fifth of, of eggs, and you cut out one forty-eighth of that, you're going to be much less than one egg. So this is in order to show us that here, when it comes to the tithe, not tithing, but to taking off your challah, the sages were not particular about this measurement of fixed an egg. Because you see, this one's a little more than that, and that's a little less than, than an egg. So from here you see and understand, these are two reasons why Rashi brought down a second measurement. Even though technically, if he wants to bring measure, he should have just brought one measurement. So with this, basically, the Rebbe really answers really all six questions. He said, Rashi says only, th- let's go through them. Rashi says that only, usually Rashi only quotes things that are relevant to the literal verses, not just halachic things. Well, over here he had to tell it to you because the word said challah, which means a torta, which means a loaf. The other hand, the verse itself said the amount like a threshing floor, which means basically any amount. So to reconcile that, he has to tell you that, that there really is amounts because it says challah, which means a loaf. Why do you have to tell me the amount that the sage says? Because it says challah. Once it says challah, that means it's some substance. Once it's some substance, I have to know what that substance amount is. I, it seems like a contradiction. At first he says there's no amount. Then he tells you there's an amount. He says yes. Because it sounds like a contradiction because you're thinking of it that it's fixed amounts. But that's what he's telling you. It's all about, it's relative. It depends. If for a house owner or a baker, what's, called, what's the loaf? Big, small. I tell me one measurement. Why don't you tell me both measurements? So he said, I have to tell you both measurements because by telling you that the measurement that the baker has, I now understand that there's a different kind of sizes that homeowners make and, and bakers make. And also in order to emphasize that the sages that in other places where they have fixed amounts of an egg size, over here, it doesn't have to be fixed to the egg size. It has to be a portion that makes sense. Sometimes going to be a little more, sometimes going to be a little less. So with this, we answer the six questions. However, the Rebbe is going to bring down now just a, a small um, side point, which turns out to be quite interesting. And then we're going to go to the part about the talk that he gave to the girls and to the counselors and staff, and the, which is the message really so powerful for all of us, the real takeaway. So, he says like this, this idea that because it mentions the word challah, now I know that when it said like a threshing floor, which means no amount, there still is going to be some kind of amount of substance, is actually teaches you an amazing halachic idea that we're going to see in the Rashi. He says there are many commentators that ask a question on Rashi that they found a contradiction in Rashi. And they say like this, 
in the first verse that we quoted, which is verse 20, over there it says, Rashi said, there's no amount, but the sages put an amount. The next verse he said, when it says you should give it to Hashem, give it to the Kohen, he says, it has to have a substance amount. So I'm confused here. There's no amount, they only tell me it has to be a substance amount. So to answer that simple contradiction of that two verses, the way Rashi learns it, the Rebbe brings down three commentaries that, that try to reconcile this difference. And we'll go through them briefly. One is the famous Rebbe Leoh Mizrahi. He lived in the 1500, between 1500 and 1600s there. And this Eliyahu Mizrahi is a famous commentary on Rashi. And he's quoted many places. He tries to understand Rashi's very well. And he says, look, he says, when Rashi says you have to give this to Hashem, you have to give an s- amount that has substance to it. It has to be like a real thing. He said, that's only like using a verse to give you some support. But really, biblically speaking, no amount. There's no specific amount that's a must. That's the way he reconciles the, the contradiction. When it says no amount, it means because you don't really need an amount. I, the next verse says you should give something of substance. That's only telling you that there's a support. There's an idea that if you, you want to have support to give more, you have a verse that could help you with that. But really, you don't have to. Then you have a commentary called the Gur Aryeh. The Gur Aryeh is from the Maral of Prague. And he says that when the verse says you should give an amount, meaning substance, he says that is to teach you that it's a mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to give an amount that has substance. But certainly if you gave much less than an amount that has substance, you gave a tiny, tiny bit, you fulfilled your obligation too. So that's what the Gurai is telling you. He's telling you you could for sure. It's just telling you get away with less. But if you do give more of substance amount, there's a mitzvah there. Okay. So he says, that's why Rashi is not a contradiction. Then he brings down from the Noida Bihuda. Noida Bihuda was a great sage. He wrote many, many uh, books on Torah. His name was Rabbi Chaska Landau. And he lived in Prague. And he lived around the same time as the Baal Shem Tov. So we're talking about maybe 350 years ago. Okay. The Noida Bihuda has a very, very lengthy... Um, essay on this contradiction of Rashi, but to summarize the, the, his point, he says like this, all foods, when you make a batch of dough and you get ready to eat, the first thing is, you have to remember that if, if we did not take out any portion of challah or in your, any foods that you have or fruits or anything that you have, if you haven't taken off your challah portion, you haven't taken off your tithing, those foods are called tevel. Tevel basically means foods that you're not allowed to, to embrace yet. How could I now take it out of tevel? means taking out of this forbidden stage. You have to give your challah or your tithing and so on. That's how it's now no more non-tithing. It's now a tithe. It's no more a batch that's non-challah. It's challah. It's a portion to taken out. So he says there's two points here. One point is to take it out of the category of forbidden food and moving it into permitted. For that, he says, the tiniest amount of chal is enough. There's no limit to take it out of the category of forbidden food. Number two is a different point. You have to give it to the Kohen. 
when it comes to giving it to the Kohen, are you going to give him a few crumbs? That's embarrassing. So when it comes to give it to him, there you have to already give it with some kind of substance. What's the substance amount? Okay, if you're a house owner, one of 24th. If you're a baker, one of 48th. Right? Of this Isaron amount, which is of the 43 eggs and the fifth, which is the portion per head person amount. That's that measurement, right? And it makes a difference on the sizes and stuff. So that's what he says, the difference in the two verses. When it says that it's like the threshing floor he's talking about, taking it out of the forbidden stage, that could be any amount. When it says it should be a substance, there it needs to have an amount. So that's a beautiful way in how he puts it. Now, Rashi who talks only the way things are in literal sense of interpretation, Rashi will explain this, that even the separation from the Torah also has to have an amount. As Rashi said, because the word said, Chala, Turtil, a loaf. Once there, even that amount, which is no amount, also is an amount. In other words, it's not a fixed amount but it's a relative amount here. So Rashi says that even according to the Torah, you have to give a substance amount like a challah, and you cannot fulfill your obligation with giving just some crumbs. And the Chachamim came and said that there's no real connection here. It's not a connected to the fact that they give it to the coin. It's connected with the whole parsha. In other words, the literal translation, meaning of the verses, you have to give this gift. So the word that says give it to Hashem or give it to the to give it to the Kohen is all talking about giving and not really it's not about giving to the Kohen. Because if the emphasis was about giving it to the Kohen, it would have been in a different parsha, Parsha Korach. Over there in Parsha Korach, it talks about the twenty-four kinds of gifts you're supposed to give to a Kohen. Here's not the place to we're not talking about here what the gifts are for the Kohen. Here he's talking about getting rid of getting separating your challah. Your portion of the challah. That's not emphasizing anything about the gifts to the Kohen. So if you want to emphasize gifts to the Kohen, that would be in Korach, in a different parsha. And the fact that there's two verses, he's saying that that's the same thing. So this basically summarizes this part of the idea. So now we understand what it means, the amount of challah, why this is the amount, why this is the amount that the sages set for a homeowner and a baker. But now comes the talk that, I, like I mentioned, that he gives there to the girl seminary, the graduation, and to the counselors that go to camp preparing everybody. He says, we're going to call this the wine of the Torah. You remember we said that Rashi's commentary is like the wine of the Torah, just like the wine is the secrets, l'chaim, just like the wine is the secrets, it pulls out the secrets, so Rashi also, hidden in there, is the wine, he got all the secrets. There's a medrash, there's a medrash that says, something quite fascinating. What's the next law, in our parsha after the chala? The next law is, a person, who inadvertently, sins, with worshipping an idol. Okay? You may have not realized it's a sin. You may have not realized that that was an idol, whatever. Right? It talks what, how you could rectify, how, how you get forgiveness for that. That's the next law after the challah law. 
So the Medrash says, what are these two doing together? Why are these two commandments about you get to Israel, separate your challah, and then the next mitzvah about worshipping idols? There must be a connection between the two. Otherwise, why would they be one after the next? So the Medrash says like this, whoever fulfills the mitzvah of challah, it's as if you nullified idol worship. Whoever desecrates the mitzvah of challah, it's as if you gave credit and substance to the existence of idol worship. So we're putting the two mitzvahs completely together. Completely together. Says the Rebbe, this is completely not understood. What's the connection of idol worship with challah? You tell me, if I give challah, I'm nullifying idol worship. If I don't give challah, I'm giving status to idol worship. What's the connection between the two? Number two, what's the connection between something that a Jew should do? A mitzvah, a lousy mitzvah, not lousy, but you know, a, a mitzvah that a person does with a batch of dough? With that, I'm going to nullify and knock away and completely get rid of the concept of idol worship? I, not to believe in idols is a fundamental belief. As a matter of fact, it's the foundation to all of Torah, not to believe in idol worship, just to believe in one God. How does this work together? Doing the mitzvah of challah, taking a portion, has got to do with the idol worship. How does this happen? That sounds so wild. Another thing that's not understood, why does this medrash say that whoever fulfills the mitzvah of challah, it's as if I nullified Think of these wordings, okay? The Rebbe always picks up on the wordings because the, the lesson is you pick it up in the use of words. The Medrash says like this, whoever fulfills the mitzvah of challah, it's as if you nullified idol worship. And whoever nullifies the mitzvah of challah, it's as if I gave status to idol worship. That means when you say that when I do challah, it's as if I'm nullifying idol worship. That means I'm telling you that an idol is a real substance. That means it's already there. It's just that if I do challah, it's getting rid of that idol worship. And if I nullify challah, I'm giving substance to the idol worship. Seemingly, even if these two ideas had some kind of connection, it should have said, whoever fulfills the mitzvah of challah, it's as if you're proving and announcing that I deny idol worship. I, I deny any belief. I, I, I don't believe in it. And whoever nullifies the mitzvah of challah, it's as if I admit that idol worship is nothing. In other words, by saying it the way the Medr says it, it's as if I'm saying that this does have a real substance. And I'm just going to get rid of that substance. Since when does idol worship have a substance? So to explain this, one of the explanations is to understand what is the real meaning of the mitzvah. Now we're getting now to, to the wine, to the soul of this. What is really the, the, the essence of the mitzvah of challah? Take the beginning of your kneading, of your, of, of your dough, and challah, right? Set aside this loaf as a portion to Hashem. Meaning like this. This is, here's the point. Since, that in order for a person 
to make a livelihood, you need to have all the necessary things to be able to make your livelihood. What's the, the, if you generalize, what's the livelihood of a person? Everything boils down to this batch of dough. Because bread is what satiates the person. So the main thing of business, of earning money, everything, this entire big world of business and commerce that people are doing, everything you're doing is all for the bread. You need to have food to eat, right? It's all about that. That means in order to get the bread, in the literal sense, you have to plow, you have to sow, you have to harvest, or as the the Talmud puts it, in the 39 works for Shabbos, the prohibitional works on Shabbos, it says these are the orders of making bread to point out all the steps, the things you're not allowed to do on Shabbos, right? You're not allowed to sow, you're not allowed to plow, you can't harvest, it's all these steps. So there's so many kinds of works that have to go into making bread. All these things are necessary in the laws of nature and they're equal for a Jew and a non-Jew. There's no difference for a Jew and a non-Jew how to make bread how to get to your bread. Everybody has to plow. Everybody has to sow. Everybody has to harvest. Everybody has to hire your trucks and your animals and, and so on and so forth. So therefore, it's possible to make a mistake. And you may say to yourself that all the steps that I'm doing to make my bread, God forbid, is not really connected with God. And how do I get it? Because I'm doing all the laws of nature. I'm plowing, I'm sowing, I'm, I'm doing all my stuff. It's possible that a person should think that all my success that I have and all my steps that I'm doing is my doing. I did all these steps. I went to work. Number two, even if you're going to say that Hashem is the one who established this whole way of nature, that by plowing and harvesting and sowing and all that, you know, that's the system for nature. That while a person is going to do all these steps, you're going to get your necessities. You may think that after the first time that Hashem set this up, after that, it's not connected with Hashem anymore. Maybe when my grandparents worked the field, Hashem, okay, he set up the system for this field. After that, it's all about me. I did it. It's all about my efforts. You may think so since it's possible to think so, especially when you look around and your neighbor is doing the exact same thing as you, who may not be Jewish. He may be doing exactly the same thing. Comes the Torah and tells you a lesson here from the mitzvah of Chalah. The first thing you need to do, the first bit, first portion of your batch, I'm going to say Hashem, it's for you. Meaning, before I even taste it, before I have any benefit from it, I'm going to recognize that the racist, the head of it, the beginning of it, from this batch, and therefore, everything that I really own is all a gift to Hashem. It's not the accomplishment for my own work because I did it based on the laws of nature. But I'm going to recognize by giving away the challah, I'm recognizing that it's Hashem, He is the one that gives me my strength to do my work. And it's birchas Hashem hitashir. It's the blessings of Hashem that makes me my wealth. It gives me my wealth. And even more, since every single day the creation is 
renewed every single moment as we learned in Lent in Tanya that Hashem recreates the world ex nihilo every single moment we just learned it in the daily Tanya not too long ago this idea that every single day Hamachadesh Betuvay Bechol Yom Tamid Maasibereshis every single day Hashem with His kindness recreates the world every single moment comes out that not just a blessing from Hashem is in the nature and in my doings, but everything that I have of nature and all my works, everything on its own would have no existence. The only way it has an existence is because every moment Hashem is renewing it. So everything that I have. So by giving your racious, by giving your beginning portion of your challah to Hashem, you're actually realizing, you're recognizing that I'm not giving it to Hashem for a gift. Especially that our parsha is not the place that it talks about giving gifts to the coin, which is the representative of Hashem. So I'm giving, when I'm giving to Hashem, you're not giving it to Him because I'm giving a charity to God. I'm actually giving to God what, he, what belongs to Him. It belongs to Hashem, it's His. Because Hashem is the one that renews the whole thing every single moment. So again, when a person gives challah, what are you doing? The first thing is, you may want to even close your eyes when you say the blessing on the challah to think this thing. But just doing it even on the simple level, taking off a piece and saying, this is for Hashem. Wow. That's recognizing that everything I have is from Hashem. And you're taking away that it's not about me, me, me. Now, let's go to the, that's doing the mitzvah of challah. What's the sin of idol worship? Let's understand that better says the Rebbe, even according to Nigla, meaning not Hasidus, even in the revealed parts of the Torah, straight out the Rambam, let's say, and he brings down, and the Rambam has a whole section called the section, the laws of idol worship. Right in the beginning there, he says like this, idol worship is not saying that I'm going to worship an idol. I take a stone, I say, oh, you're my God. That, that, that's not only what idol worship means, God forbid, to say that that's a God. You know what he says? What's idol worship? Just the recognition and saying that these stars or these zodiacs and all the things that help the laws of nature of this world, all the powers that help this world move around, just to think that they have their own source of power and rulership, that is idol worship. Just to think that. Even though, that you know in the beginning that Hashem created everything. Hashem gave the strength to the sun, to the moon, and all that stuff, right? And all the stars and so on and so forth. But the truth is that all the laws of nature and everything of the stars and the zodiacs, everything are all, as the expression goes, kigarzon biyada chotzev. It's like the axe in the hand of the woodchopper. In other words, who's, who's chopping down the wood? The axe or the woodchopper? It's the woodchopper. Ah, he's using the axe to help him to knock down the wood. Very nice. Nice axe. But the axe is a nobody without the woodchopper himself. So the stars... And the zodiacs and, and all that, again, they're only the axe 
They're only the tools that Hashem is, chose to use them. But they have no strength on their own. And they also have no freedom of choice to change anything. Hashem decides when it should rain, when it should snow, when it should be hot, whatever, everything. They are only methods in the way Hashem uses to be able to communicate what He wants to communicate to this world. And even more, in a more refined way, a refined point of avodazar of idol worship is understood. Not just when you say that you're taking the strength, that there is, that there is a strength other than God, but by saying that there is some kind of existence other than God. Not just saying there are strength, there are God. No. Even just saying that there is an existence in this world other than God is also some form of idol worship. Because the truth is, there's nothing else in this world besides God at the end of the day. In this world, and in the laws of nature on, their, on its own, it's not recognizable. You don't see it on the surface. That's true. You don't. The world and nature, right, covers over godliness. So you don't see it on its own. And even more so, it's not even noticeable and you have to think about it. You have to think that there's a creator to this world. Actually, in the, in the, in, in, in the edited version, they don't have a few words that the Rebbe says in the audio. In the audio there, you can hear the Rebbe says that you have to think about that there's a creator to this world. And he says there that if you would listen to the news what's going on in the world, it becomes quite, it could be frightening. Especially when you talk about the news of that are against Israel and against the Jews, it could become quite frightening. Because you, why does it come so frightening? Because you could forget that there's a master to this whole world. But when you remember that there's a master to this whole world, that's a different story. So, by if you forget that there's a master to this world, that's a form of idol worship. And therefore, when a Jew does the mitzvah of challah. You're recognizing and you're revealing that in this dough, that my livelihood that I'm getting, it comes through all the laws of nature and the efforts and everything is all from Hashem. And through that, you're nullifying the whole idea of idol worship. Because you could see now that in this world, everything is running, uh, is running all from the direction from Hashem. On the other hand, on the other hand, while a while a, on the other hand, while a while you if you desecrate and nullify the mitzvah of challah, that means I'm recognizing that not everything comes from Hashem. So it's as if I'm giving status to idol worship because I'm saying that it's all it's all the nature, and that's what's giving me my livelihood. And more so, even if I nullify the mitzvah of challah by accident, which is the next law in this about all doing things by, by mistake, inadvertently. Meaning, what do you mean if I forget to do the challah? By mistake, I forgot to do the challah. Then I'm also giving status to the idol worship. Why would we say it so sharp? Why does the Medrash put it like that? If you forgot to do the challah, you forgot to do the challah. He says, you know why it could happen? When is it possible to forget something? When you don't see something around you, it's possible to forget, right? You're not going to forget to drink your water if it's sitting right in front of you. You have it. You don't need to be reminded it's, it's there. If you, if you realize that it's there. 
then you don't forget. So something that you're aware of and it's in your mind, then you don't forget. So the fact that you forget, if you forget that everything comes from Hashem, or if you don't think about everything comes from Hashem, then it's possible to forget the challah. That means it's possible that you didn't digest it, you didn't live it enough. And therefore it's possible that God forbid you're giving status to the idol worship. Not idol worship again, of bowing down to an idol, but bowing to the belief that this world is a world on its own without a God. Now we can understand with this also, in brief, the difference between the measurements of the mitzvah of challah. When it comes to idol worship, even the smallest amount is idol worship. So too by giving challah, even though really there's no amount, but even if you gave a little amount, that's enough. On the other hand, just like idol worship started and is connected with giving status to the sun, to the moon, to other images, erecting uh, bricks and then bowing to them, so too with the mitzvah of challah. The sages said, let's give it amounts, even in quantity. Meaning, on the essence of a person, the essence of a Jew, your soul, you have a full, is full of faith. So the prohibition of idol worship is even on the smallest amount. Because when it comes to faith, you're not allowed to give any space at all for anything that, it's in, that exists to say that even this small amount is a real existence without Hashem. Even in the smallest amount, that's called idol worship. Therefore, on the positive side, even when it comes to challah, when it, which is the point of faith, that's the whole point of this mitzvah challah is about faith. There's no limit. There's no limit when it comes to show faith. Even just taking a tiny bit of challah emphasizes this point of the faith. But the sages come and say, nah, even though there's no amount, we're going to set aside an amount. Because when it comes down to intellect of a person, which is chachamim, the sages, which means chachamim means the wise. That's what it means. People of intellect. So just like by, by idol worship, there is a fixed amount on how much the mistake could be. So too, it comes to challah. How do you nullify that mistake of idol worship? It's through having in your mind a certain amount of intellect. And since the idea of idol worship, which is the mitzvah challah, the mitzvah challah comes to protect us from the idea of idol worship, it does not mean, like we said before, literally idol worship, but it means even in your mind, even leaving any space in your mind to think like that is a problem. And with this, he concludes with one more idea that's brought down in Hasidus. There are two kinds of people that live in our world. Okay? Certainly in the Jewish world, but really it's everywhere. There's what we call the Balesek and the Yoshev Oyel. Balesek means a businessman. Yoshev Oyel means a person who sits and learns Torah all the time. Now, a businessman has to go out to earn his living. And he has to work for it. He has to buy merchandise and sell it. And all this depends on the markets, depends where you live. There's many things that are involved. Because the business person 
sees how many different things could play a role in his business. Therefore, the businessman sees the hand of God much more often than the person that's sitting and learning Torah all day. Because the person that's sitting and learning Torah, his salary, his income is fixed. He's getting a pension or whatever it is. And that's it. He doesn't go out to the world. So he doesn't see the hand of God all the time. He doesn't see the Ashkacha Pratis, the divine province. And that's the difference of a homeowner and a baker. A homeowner, which the main thing for him is to do the challah that was brought to him or her. The person that's baking challah in the house bakes the challah for their household. Usually, the person that bakes it is not so involved in all the orders of plowing and threshing and then sewing and raking and rebating. That's not, that's not what that person is involved. You know, going to buy the wood for the fireplace. Everything's kind of coming ready home, especially today, right? You order it all online. So you're not involved with all the process of it, right? You ask today a kid, where does milk come from? They tell you it comes from the store, right? Because we're not involved with the whole process. Ask a kid, where does challah come from? Either from the mother in the kitchen or from the bakery. They don't realize there's a whole process of farmings and fields and so on. So therefore, the person that's in the house, meaning representing the idea where you see less the hand of God, how God's involved in every single little detail. Therefore, that person has to give a bigger challah, one of 24th. Because for that person, there's a bigger concern that they may forget that Hashem really runs every little detail. But the baker... Who's the person that's the businessman? He's going out to the field. He's dealing, negotiating with the farmers. He's, uh, he's doing all the commerce out there. He sees the divine province all the time. That Hashem is the one that sends him all his livelihood. Therefore, for him, it's enough to give a smaller amount. One of 48, half the amount is already enough. Because even that little bit of an amount will protect him not to think that everything's from the laws of Nature, he realizes it all comes from Hashem. Now, the Rebbe concludes with a bracha, and he says, through fulfilling this mitzvah of challah, we merit that we'll be able to have a bracha in your house, and you bring this Hashem's bracha in everything that's needed in your house, and this is noticeable in everything that goes on in the house, that everything is being conducted by God. And to this, or then, you have also the literal bracha in all areas, in health, for children, and mezayna, sorry, mebanai in children, chayai in life, and mezayna, and your sustenance in a way of comfort. And this is the concluding of the sicha. But I just want to add the one small piece that he says in the, you can hear it in the audio sicha. Over there he says that all staff, all you girls, and the counselors that are going to camp, and he says, not just the girl counselors, but even the boy counselors. I guess he assumed the boys are listening elsewhere, everybody. And he says, everybody that has power of influence for the summer programs and all year round should make sure to make this their ambition to help all the people you can reach to to realize how everything comes from Hashem. By doing the mitzvah of challah, you'll show that the beginning, I take off Hashem, showing that everything really comes from Hashem. And he suggests over there, that's by memorizing the 12 passages of the Torah. That was a campaign the Rebbe was pushing in the 70s until today to memorize what's called the 12 
passages. You can find them online quite easily. The 12 passages that were instituted by the Rebbe to memorize that, and they are very key Great passages, verses, and from Tanya and from Talmud and from all over the place. Okay, so with this, we conclude this series.